Well, this morning we are continuing through our series in John's Gospel, and we're into the second kind of chunk of John chapter 8. If you were with us last week, uh, you remember that maybe we said the verses right before this section, uh, verses 1 to 11 of John chapter 8, were most likely uh, added into the text a little bit later, and we gave some reasons why we thought that and believed that and, and why that's okay, it doesn't shake and rock our faith. But we said that that text was kind of put in there as, as perhaps an illustration of two of Jesus' judging comments. Uh, he comments on judging in chapter 7, verse 24, and also today in verse uh, 15. But I want to remind us of that sort of uh, interjected passage because uh, it's important, uh, as important as those verses are, they, they really break up the narrative a little bit there. And sometimes it means we're now two weeks away from two weeks ago, and we maybe forget where we've come from and some of the context uh, that these verses we're looking at today uh, take place in. And so if we do that, if we forget kind of where we're coming from, if we just sort of pull these verses out in a vacuum, we're going we're gonna to really miss some essential pieces about the text. Remember that in chapter 7, again, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we were told that Jesus was at the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. This was one of the top three biggest festivals on the Jewish calendar. The, the population of Jerusalem would swell to many times its normal size. Uh, the Festival of Tabernacles is an autumn har harvest festival. It would take place kind of near the end of the year, around the fall equinox, where, where the light of the day and the, the dark of the night were about the same length. And there were two really uh, tremendously important rites or ceremonies that took place during this week-long or eight-day-long festival. Uh, one was with water and the other with light. And so when we were looking at chapter 7, we saw Jesus go to the temple on the last day, the, the kind of the culmination and the crux of the festival, and he declared himself to be the living water. Verse 37, this is John, verse, John 7, verse 37. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, he said, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow living water. See, Jesus takes this ritual, this ceremony, this rite that, that the Jewish people had, had celebrated for centuries and centuries, that reminded them of, of God taking care of them in the desert, that reminded them of, of Moses bringing water from a rock. And if you're in a desert without water, you're dead. And so this was life-giving water that God provided for his people. And he said, this thing we've been celebrating as the Jewish nation for centuries and centuries and centuries, it points to me. It's all about me. I am the true and better life-giving water. And so this morning, as we come to these verses, we're going to go from verse 12 to about verse 30. We're still in the midst of that festival. We're still in the, the final days and maybe final hours of that festival. And there is another ceremony, another rite that was celebrated. And this one had to do with light. If we look back into our Old Testaments, uh, the prophet Zechariah maybe especially helps us understand the context for both the water and the light ceremonies in this festival. Read this, in the, in the day of the Lord, not only would there be abundant water flowing from Jerusalem, but on that day, there will, it will be a unique day, Zechariah says, without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. And when the evening comes, there will be light. And so this festival is just 
filled with imagery from the desert waters, uh, the desert wandering to uh, the water flowing from a rock to the pillar of fire leading the nation for years and years and years. And so we need to remind ourselves that, that this was a time where all sorts of Old Testament and, and modern themes and motifs collided at this festival. It was about the harvest. It was about uh, praying to God for his blessing during a time that could easily turn into drought time. The festival was about the coming winter darkness as the days got longer and longer. It was reminding the people of their desert wanderings from so long ago. But it also had this eschatological vision, this, this view forward to the end times where God would make all things right again. I was part of this ceremony in the temple. There were four massive stands that each held four massive lamps that were filled with oil. And, and one commentator notes for us that it was actually, the wicks of these stands were actually like cloths that the, the priests had one time worn. So they were these massive bowls. And it was said that when these lamps were lit in the night, the rabbi said that, that all of Jerusalem, the whole city was bathed in light from these lamps in the temple. The light just burst out of the windows, the, 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 the frames of this most holy high place and, and lit the whole city. Remember, back then there was, of course, no electricity. Once the sun went down, the only way to get light was through a lamp or a fire or a candle. And so imagine these 16 massive lamps just bursting light out into the city. And meanwhile, this was celebration. This is party time. There's, you know, maybe four, five, six times as many people in the city as normal. And the Levites, the priests, they're singing songs to the Lord. The people are singing and dancing in the streets. And it's just, it's packed. Everybody's celebrating. This is one of the high moments on the calendars. And then at the height of the festival, Jesus steps into the temple, stands underneath where these lamps were, where this ceremony was taking place, and he declares this in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. Now, we've watched Jesus do this over and over again so far. He takes an essential piece of the Jewish religion, an essential piece of their Old Testament history and expectation, and Jesus puts himself right in the center of it and says, this points to me. You've been expecting me for generations and generations. We saw Jesus do it with Moses, with the manna in the desert, with the Sabbath itself, with living water, and now with light. Not only light for Jerusalem, but light for the whole world. Of course, uh, in John's biography, in John's gospel, light is a absolutely massive theme, this uh, duality of light and darkness, but it really is for the whole Old Testament as well. We've already seen in John's gospel, right at the, at the outset, in the prologue, in chapter 1, verse 4, John says, Jesus is the light of men. But look at some of the, the Old Testament weight this idea of light carries as well. In Exodus 13, light was God's presence that led the people to the promised land. It was God's presence that protected them in their desert wanderings. The Israelites were trained through the Psalms, through their psalm book, that the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord, Yahweh, the one true God, is my light. 
Uh, Psalm 119 and Proverbs 6 say the, the, that the word of God and the law of God is a light to guide us, right? Your word is a, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We read in uh, Ezekiel and Habakkuk that, that God's light brings revelation and it brings salvation. That it's the light that rescues the people. Psalm 44 said, light is the Lord in action. Isaiah tells us that the servant of the Lord, the one that they were expecting, the Messiah, the anointed one, was, God's, uh, was appointed as God's light to the world, light to the Gentiles that would bring salvation all the way to the ends of the earth. And also in Isaiah 60, we read that in the coming age, God himself would be the light for his people. And of course, we read that in the end of our New Testaments as well in Revelation 21. Now, this list goes on and on of examples of light throughout the scriptures and maybe especially in the Old Testament. And so we're not just kind of spouting off verses here to fill time, but rather to remind us that Jesus is standing in the middle of the temple, in the middle of Jerusalem, the heart of Judaism, the heart of the the Jewish culture and religion and life. And he's standing under these massive lamps lit for this festival. And he just said, I am the light of the world. Every Jew that would have heard him say these things would have had these scriptures and others ringing in their ears and said, what did he just say? We're told where he was in the temple and at this location, he absolutely, his words would have been heard by the Pharisees, by the temple rulers, by all the religious leaders that would have been there. And of course, he gathers their attention as well. But notice that he doesn't just leave this claim to be light He doesn't make it and just let it hang kind of in the air. But right away he adds something of a consequence, something that because I am light, this is true. He says, I am the light of the world, so whoever follows me, like Israel did through the pillar of fire, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Remember back in John chapter 3, John said the people love their darkness rather than light. He said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's saying, this light produces life and life to the full. He's saying the only way to make it in this life is to follow me. The only way to escape slavery to sin is to follow me. The only way to know where to go to truly live and ultimately to make it to heaven and to be with God again is to follow me. His claim to be the light of the world here also says that it's only through me that you can understand everything else. One writer says this, we can't make sense of a world that has so much evil and so much good without Jesus. Jesus helps us see it. He helps us understand it. In Jesus' light, we can embrace the reality that this world is broken because of sin but we can do so with hope because Jesus has promised to fix it. And that hope of ours, it's, it's not a fool's dream. It's rooted in the reality of the resurrection that we today can look back and see. Jesus has already defeated death, and so we have confidence that he will one day banish death forever. Jesus is the light of the world, and only by following him can we see And so here's the question we all have to answer and all have to sort of wrestle with. Are you still running around in darkness or have you turned to Jesus so that you can see? 
The Pharisees hear Jesus' words, of course, and push back in verse 13. They say, you're bearing witness about yourself, and so your testimony is not true. See, they recognize absolutely what Jesus has just said here. Ability and authenticity in speaking these words. And as we saw a couple of chapters ago, and we wrestled with this uh, a few weeks ago, in order for someone to make a claim in a court of law, there needed to be multiple witnesses. And so the Pharisees are, are taking Jesus' statement and they're turning it into a legal matter here. The last time, of course, they brought this up, Jesus pointed to four witnesses. We looked at this uh, a number of weeks ago. Jesus pointed to uh, John the Baptist as a witness, to his own works as a second witness, to the Father himself as a third, and to the Scriptures as four witnesses here. And so in these next couple of verses, he kind of rehashes what he said uh, earlier and is pointing again to God the Father as the second witness which makes his claims true. From verse 14, He says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I've come from or where I'm going. He says, you judge according to the flesh, according to a a worldly understanding, but I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me, the Lord who sent me. In your law, Jesus continues, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my Father, because if you knew me, you would know my Father also. Again, these verses are, are largely a legal challenge to Jesus' authority. The Pharisees want someone to back up Jesus' claims. Jesus said, God the Father is that second needed witness. And maybe when they ask, where is your father? They're kind of poking back at, well, really? We know you were conceived, how you were conceived. We, we know the stories that Mary was unwed. So where is your father, Jesus? But look what Jesus does here. It's, it's different than the last legal dispute about witnesses. He talks about how his words are true, not just because he has other people backing up what he's saying, but that they're the words of the Father who sent him. The religious leaders who, again, he calls out in them that they have just a religious view, a worldly view. They're not thinking of things above, just things of this world. They can't understand this. But Jesus comes from the Father He's not speaking on his own authority. He's, he's echoing what the Father has told him to say. The, the problem here with the authorities is that they don't know God. They don't recognize God here. And that's why they ask the question, well, where is your Father? They're incapable of, of recognizing Jesus because they, they don't recognize that everything Jesus is doing points people beyond Jesus himself but to the Father who sent him. They thought, the religious leaders thought, they were the ones that knew God best. They were the ones who were closest to God, and they knew what God would be thinking and what God would be doing because they knew the scriptures the best, and they kept all the rules, and they kept all the rules about the rules. But it seems that all that rule-keeping, all that legalism has led to them missing the heart of the Father for his people As one commentator says, without a deep knowledge of of God the Father and his love, it's impossible to recognize his son. Leslie Newbegin also 
talks about this and, and writes about this, and he, he writes these words, which I think also help us understand uh, or help us helps speak to the question of where is God in all this that, that every one of us wrestles with so often. He says, the only answer to a person who sincerely asks, where is God, is to say, look at Jesus. And for the religious leaders right now, it's Jesus is standing right there in their midst in verse 19. He continues and said, God is to be known in his revelation of himself. Jesus came to reveal God to us. He says to know the revelation is to know the one being revealed. There's no other way of knowing. If you see Jesus, you see the Father. Finally, he says, if the rulers had known God, then they wouldn't have needed to ask this question because they would have seen him in Jesus. Verse 20 we read that Jesus spoke these words in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is a bit of an editorial note that reminds us that Jesus is in the heart of the temple. He is right around these bowls that would be casting light soon, but also that he is in control. The words he's saying are going to get him killed, but not yet. This next section, starting at verse 21, seems to have a bit of a repetition of what we just talked about, but, but Jesus adds an element of urgency, saying that he's going to be going away. This, this call to follow him, this call to, to be in the light, is something of a limited time offer. Let's read. So he said to them, again, he's now talking to maybe the crowds, but also the religious leaders, I'm going away and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews replied then, will he, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? A couple things in these two verses. First, Jesus, light of the world, says when he goes back to the Father, they won't be able to follow him because they're still in darkness. One writer says this is the entire human dilemma. We were made to know God, to enjoy God, to, to live with and for God, but we have rebelled. We've gone our own way. We're, we're trusting in our own things. These religious leaders are trusting in their own rules and trusting solely in the law, and they've missed God. He says human religion is an attempt for us to get back to God. Whatever we do, it's an attempt to get back to the way things should be. It's our effort to regain what was lost by our rebellion. But here is Jesus essentially saying to the most religious people around, you can't do it. You can't get to God. You, you can't get to heaven. Your sin will always be in the way. And the Jews wonder, well, he must be going to kill himself or something since we can't follow him. In, in those days, suicide was considered something, uh, uh, something unforgivable. And so they kind of logically conclude that while we're good religious people, so we're going to be going to heaven, so that means Jesus must not be going there. But in a sense... They're kind of exactly right, aren't they? Jesus isn't going to kill himself as they presuppose, but he is going to turn himself over and be killed. The irony is he's going to turn himself over to be killed by these very people, these very religious law-keeping people. This is something that, that marks Christianity as different from pretty much every other worldview, the, the sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice of its founder and leader. Matt Carter says, the lifeblood of Christianity is self-sacrifice. In a society where power and wealth and authority are the great goals, Jesus shows us a different way. He shows us the path stained with blood and says, follow me. 
He tells us to give up our rights for the good of someone else. He tells us the way to be great is to serve. He shows us a radical way of living, the way of self-sacrifice. And he, Jesus, made a sacrifice that is far greater than any sacrifice you or I could make. He gave up heaven. Jesus responds in verse 23, listen, you're from below, I am from above. You're of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you, are, you will die in your sins. That he, in the second verse there, in verse 24, is put there for our understanding. Jesus really says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus drops the divine name of God on them. Unless you believe in the Lord, unless you believe in Yah, unless you believe that I am, they completely miss it. Verse 23 says, unless we believe you are who? See, Jesus isn't just another prophet from God bringing a message, but he is in fact God himself. Jesus isn't just another good religious teacher bringing teachings that are from below, but he is God's son who has been sent from above. The crowd doesn't get it in this moment, but the identity of Jesus is the most important thing about him. And John tells us again in verse 27 that they just don't get it. And so he makes it even more plain, Jesus does. Look at verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, it says in our text to help us understand it, but you will know that I am, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus is saying, listen, if you don't get this now, what I'm saying now, you will. When I give up my life, when I'm lifted up at the cross, then you will know that I am. I think Gary Burge helpfully replies, the supreme moment of revelation is when Jesus is lifted up. Chapter 8, verse 28, which is, is not merely the cross, but it's, it's the series of events that lead there and lead to his glorification, his betrayal, Jesus' trial, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. It was through these things that the world will see, uh, not that Jesus was simply telling the truth, but that he actually is the bearer of God's divine name, I am. And so here's where you and I are left. Jesus is the light of the world, sent by God to light up the darkness and lead us home, to lead us to light. The way he did this was giving up heaven, and coming down. He came to us, he came to this world knowing that he would be lifted up so that he could give us heaven. Jesus lived the perfect life. In verse 29, it tells us that, that Jesus always did the things that the Father asked him to. They always did the things that are pleasing to the Father. Nobody else can say that. No other person that has ever lived can say that they perfectly obeyed God the Father all the time. Every single one of us is separated from God by our rebellion, by our choices, by our sin. But then Jesus was lifted up on the cross. He died for our sin. He paid the penalty for our rebellion. 
He got what you and I deserve so that you and I can have what he deserved. He took our death and gave us life. He died in our place to give us life, but there's still something that is required of you and I. He did the, the, the real hard work, but something is still needed on our part. It's, it's not work. It's not effort. It's not following and, and adhering to religious rituals, but it's faith. It's trust. That word, unless that Jesus uses is a beautiful word. Look back at verse 24 where he says, you will die in your sins unless. See, you and I, were lost in the darkness unless we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he gave up heaven and came down to earth, that he took our son, took our sin, and that he gave you and I life and hope and joy and heaven. And what's required on our part is faith and trust. This is uh, not always easy, of course. The Pharisees claimed to have faith in God, but Jesus called them out. You're judging by human standards, he said in verse 15. See, they were trying to reason their way into heaven. They couldn't wrap their minds around what Jesus was saying. They were from below, and they were trying to understand in the flesh. But here's what our text is really saying to us this week. The, again, the question that every one of us needs to, to wrestle with and respond to is that Jesus is the light of the world, sent by the Father. Will you trust him? He didn't just say some things and go away, but he said some things, he backed them up, he, he demonstrated that what he was saying was true. So will you trust him? Let me uh, wrap up with this from Matt Carter because I think it's a really helpful conclusion. He says, all the time, you and I decide who we trust. When we pick up medicine from the pharmacy, we trust our doctor who prescribed it, our pharmacist who prepared it. We also trust the company that developed it and the government that approved it, plus the people who trained the doctor and the pharmacist and the many hands at the drug company who prepared it and packaged it. When it comes to our physical life, we trust our care to a lot of people. But when it comes to your spiritual life, who do you trust? Your authority is, is either yourself, he says, what you think, how you feel, what you've experienced, or it's God and what he says. Do you really want to trust yourself with your eternal future? You are just flesh. You didn't exist until 30 or 50 or 80 years ago, and you won't exist in a a bodily form in 30 or 50 or 80 years from now. You can't keep yourself from getting sick or hurt. You can't guarantee you'll be alive tomorrow. Do you really think that your best choice to be the ultimate authority in your life is you? He says this, listen, there are lots of reasons that Jesus is trustworthy. He is God. He never lies. He never sins. He's loving. The list goes on and on. But here's the one key reason to trust him. He's the light of the world. He gave up heaven to give us heaven. And so if you can find someone who sacrificed more for you than Jesus did, then you can trust him, but you can't. Jesus has earned your trust by the things he did. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you again for this morning, for these words. I pray that you would speak to us through them.
that, that your word would go deep into our hearts and it would challenge us and change us and draw us to you. Jesus, thank you for your words that you are the light of the world, that you came to show us the way. Thank you that you went to this, this festival and took all the, the signs that had been pointing to you and you claimed them for yourself. I pray, again, as we've talked about with uh, idolatry at the beginning of this service and now as we chase after uh, uh, who we put our faith in, who we put our trust in, that you would show us, Holy Spirit, what we're trusting in. Is it created things or is it the creator? Show us maybe even just individual areas of our life where we're trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in you, Jesus. And I pray that as we wrestle with these things that we would come to the realization that, Jesus, again, you are the light of the world leading us home. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen.